Good evening. It's a privilege to be here to, with, with you. I'll try not to get too close, but I want to be able to engage everyone in the back. We're certainly thankful, thankful for the opportunity to open the Word of God. Our prayer tonight is that we will draw closer to the Word of God. We will draw closer to God by studying His Word. And if you are a visitor with us this evening, we welcome you, we love you, and we are thankful that you have made the time and the sacrifice to be with us. You, by your decision, have encouraged us tremendously. Last evening, we talked about building belief, forming faith. And this evening, we're going to talk about something that is connected to that. We're going to continue to talk about faith, but in order to do so, we have to put faith in its proper place. In fact, if you were to talk about Christianity and a study of the Word of God, there are three things you have to keep in mind. The first category are what we're going to call uh, facts. And when we talk about facts this evening, we're talking about things that are absolutely true based upon the teachings of the Word of God, the Bible. When you study the Bible, you're not studying fiction or fairy tale or fable, but things that come from the very heart and the mind of God, things that are true, things that are reasonable, things that have been proven to be absolutely the Word of God. Now there's another category, and that is the category of faith. Now I want to do all that I can tonight to impress upon you, as I did last night, the importance of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, we cannot be saved. And certainly, faith plays a vital, essential role in your salvation and mine. Now, there's another category, and that is the subject of feelings. When we talk about feelings, we're talking about the emotions of an individual. Our joy, our sorrow, our happiness... We're talking about feelings that are produced out of our heart. And certainly, when we talk about Christianity, there are a multitude of feelings that uh, are produced as a result. The Apostle Paul said, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. We ought to be full of joy, and gladness. But tonight there is a grave danger, and that is not getting these in the order like the Bible reveals them. And let me give you an example of that problem. There are those who might make the mistake of basing what they do in the name of religion or Christianity upon their feelings. They put their feelings first. 
Now, again, feelings are important. But the problem with feelings is that they are inconsistent. They are constantly changing. They are unstable. In fact, often we might even put them in the category of sinking sand beneath our feet. They're like clouds. They're constantly changing. And what feels right today may feel wrong tomorrow. And what feels wrong today may feel right tomorrow. Your feelings and my feelings are not really a reliable gauge of, of deciding right from wrong. In fact, the, the Word of God warns us of not placing too much stock on our feelings. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that feels right. There's a way it seems right. You may think that it is right, but just because it feels right doesn't mean that it is. There's a lot of people that are doing a lot of things based upon how they feel, and that can be a very dangerous thing, and we want to avoid that. Proverbs 3 and verse 5 tells us we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And so you can put your feelings first and you've made a mistake. Now there's another problem, and that is what we would call putting our faith first. Now what I would mean by that is that sometimes we do things simply because we have been taught those things by traditions or it's something that we are comfortable with or our conscience is satisfied with and we have a personal faith and because of our personal faith it doesn't much matter what the Bible says we're going to continue to do it this way or that way because it is a matter of our perhaps even our family faith or our personal faith and again this is a grave mistake Paul said in Acts 23 and verse 1 of course, before he heard the truth of who Jesus was and he responded to the gospel, he was a great persecutor of Christians. And he became a Christian eventually and looking back upon that former life, he tells those who he was standing before that he had lived in all good conscience before God. He had a personal faith that he should um, that he should uh, persecute Christianity, that he should oppose Jesus Christ. And he did that. But he was wrong in doing that. And God confronted him with that. And you know what God confronted him with? He confronted him with the facts. And so tonight, the first thing a person must face and the first thing a person must have are Bible facts. And I want to go over a few Bible facts tonight that we must all face, that we must all look at and consider, and we must, uh, we must uh, decide what we're going to do. Every one of us, we're going to be confronted with the same set of facts. And what we do with those facts, it's up to us. We're free moral agents. But what we do with it will often depend upon, like we mentioned last night, our heart, our sincerity, and uh, really our motivation to please God. The first Bible fact 
It's not going to be surprising. It's very clear from the very verse, first passage in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a God. And that is the first fact you've got to come to grips with. As you open the Word of God, as you open the Bible, and you begin to read the very first verse, it makes it, uh, it, it presumes that those who would be reading it uh, believe in God. You know, the, the, the writer of Genesis, which is no doubt Moses, when he writes about the creation account, he does not go into a long, elaborate theological discussion or even a debate as to try to prove the existence of God. He writes a very brief account Two chapters, really, that give us the creation of the universe and the creation of man really can be uh, divided or summed up in the very first chapter. It's as if um, only a fool would believe in his heart that there is no God. It is evident by the world that we live in, the creation that we behold. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. But the Word of God, the Bible, reveals more about His character, His goodness, His greatness, His graciousness. And certainly, a person must believe that there is a God. Now, that is a fact. Now, the second thing that we're going to address is the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible presents Jesus and declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Now, in a sense, all of us are sons and daughters of God in that God is the creator of all and we are his offspring. We are his creation. But Jesus is not the Son of God in the same way you and I could claim that. We are created by God. Jesus was not created by God. But Jesus is the Son of God in that He shares the same nature as God. A Son reflects the Father. And it's not as though Jesus is subordinate to the Father in His nature. No, we understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is equal with God. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Matthew 17 verse 5, we have the account of Jesus ascending a mountain along with three of his disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And while he is there, Peter, being the quick silvered tongue that he was, he often spoke before he thought, he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Not, not a bad thing to say. But he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, who happened to be transfigured there in front of Jesus, in, with Jesus. And the Bible says that while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, 
suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, speaking of Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God spoke audibly at least three times during the ministry of Jesus that he was the son of God. He is my son. I am pleased in him. Not only that, but in Mark, Matthew 16 and verses 16 through 17, Jesus takes his disciples to a, a coast off of Caesarea Philippi. And uh, he asked them a question, who do men say that I am? And you know what they say? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're J Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? You know, tonight it doesn't really matter what the world says about Jesus. It matters what we say, what you th say, what you think, and what you believe about him. And the Apostle Peter on this occasion, he stood up and he spoke up once again, and he's dead on. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You did not get this from mere men or mortal man, but you got this from God. This information, this conclusion, this reason this reasoning about me, you were able to draw the conclusion that I am the Son of God because of the works and the miracles that I do by the power and the hand of Almighty God. That is a fact. Now it is a fact that Jesus is God's Son and that God gave His Son. Now when we say that, we mean not only did He send Him into the world, which He did, but that he gave him up. He delivered him up as a sacrifice to die. God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. Now I didn't read the first part which is just as important for God so loved the world. Why did God give his son? Why did he send his son? Why did he sacrifice his son? Because he loved us. It is a Bible fact that we, in our sin, has, have a dilemma. And that dilemma is, we're separated from God. And how can we be saved in such a, a, a damned, separated state? But God also had a dilemma. He loved us. He loved us. But he could not overlook the sin that we've committed. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that Jesus might become the substitute, the sacrifice on our behalf. And that's a beautiful thing. That is a, a golden thing, isn't it? Actually, that's a good thing. We call it the good news. The gospel is the good news. And the good news indicates the bad news. The bad news is we were lost but God in His love gave us a way to be saved. And what a wonderful truth that is. Now, Jesus Christ was given by God to die upon the cross. It is a Bible fact that when Jesus offered Himself up, He said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. And He laid down His life upon the old rugged cross.
And when he did, he died. And the Bible tells us that this was not something that um, he went through, that uh, his, his, his uh, body just slumped or he fainted or he, he swooned. No, the Bible says that he actually died. He breathed his last. He gave up the ghost. And this is something that is repeated throughout the New Testament. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the most amazing thing of the whole story of the Bible is that while we were undeserving, God gave his son. While we were yet sinners, God loved us when we were unlovable. Philippians 2.8 Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. The death of the cross. Jesus died on the cross. You know, there are some that believe that Jesus didn't really die. Well, the Bible teaches that he did die. And they believe that he died. Because you know what they did after he died? They buried him. They certainly wouldn't have buried him if, they, if he hadn't been dead or they thought he wasn't dead. In Luke 23, verses 52 through 53, there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asked for the body of Jesus and he took it down along with Nicodemus and he wrapped it in linen and he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock wherein uh, no one had ever lain before. Jesus Christ was buried. They put him in a grave. And it was a new grave. He was only going to use it for a little while because Jesus was not only going to die and be buried, he was going to come up out of the grave and he was going to be raised and that's one of the earliest messages. That was the early message of Christianity. Now that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on a cross, but it was part of God's plan. And that God raised Him up. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested of God, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Uh, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. Now listen to this. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was not possible that Jesus remained there because it was the will of God and the plan of God and the forethought of God that He come out of the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul delivers the gospel to the church at Corinth and he said, I want you to know uh, what I, when I come to you, what I preach first. What, what does he preach first, by the way? The facts. <laughs> what facts? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That little phrase, according to the scriptures, suggests that God said it would happen. And it happened. 
God prophesied. He predicted. He foretold that Jesus would come. It wasn't an accident that he would die. And it was part of God's plan that he would rise again. You know, even the disciples of Jesus had a hard time believing that. When they saw Jesus, they couldn't believe. For the very eyes seemed to have deceived them. Here was a man they, they had seen dead. He was no doubt dead. He had been scourged. He had been beaten. And that he had been crucified. And it took, it took them touching him, feeling him, and seeing him eat right there in front of them before they would even believe that he was. But then he, show, he shares to the, with them the scriptures that tell them that what you're seeing here is not an accident. This was all a part of God's divine plan. Now I'm going to hasten on here. Because when Jesus came out of the grave, he had a purpose. Jesus came out of the grave to establish the church. He made a prediction before he died that he was going to establish and build his church. Just just after Peter made the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and, and just after Jesus tells Peter, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. And he says, I, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What's the rock? The truth, the fact that he is the Son of God. He is the deity that he claimed and proved to be. And he said, upon this established truth, this fact, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I'm going to die. I'm going into the grave. I'm going to enter into the Hadean realm. But those gates are not going to prevent me from building my church. I'm going to come out and I'm going to establish and build the kingdom, the church. Now, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, Matthew 6, 16, rather, verse 18, he said, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. And he's going to use the terms church and kingdom interchangeably. There's a little difference. Obviously the kingdom of heaven includes all of the rule of God but it most certainly is manifested by the church on the earth. And here he is telling us or he is telling his disciples who were standing there and he was engaging them in conversation that you're not going to die. You're not going to see death until you see the kingdom come with power. You know what that teaches me tonight? It teaches me that the kingdom of God has already come because those men are no longer with us. They tasted death. They, they saw death. And Jesus said, before you do die, you will see the kingdom come. And it's going to come with power. And here's the hint. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we know that when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, that's when they would receive power. And Jesus promised them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came upon them, enabled them, and gave them the power to speak in 
foreign languages that they had never learned or studied before. It gave them the ability to uh, miraculously uh, confirm the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. And that's what we see. The church is being established in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. After Peter tells them what to do to be saved, the Bible gives us a little bit of a summary of their history. And then in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all of the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is an important fact. The Lord promised that he was going to build his church, and now in Acts chapter 2 we see that the church has been established. And the Lord is adding the saved to it. Here's a fact. The Lord adds the saved to his church. What is the church? The church is the saved. Now here's a question. How do I become a member of the church? Well, to ask that question is to ask, how do I become saved? How am I saved? Because once you're saved, the Lord adds you to his church. Now, the answer is, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a Bible fact. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon, he's preaching to an audience. They're confused because the apostles had been speaking in tongues. And some accuse them of being drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's impossible. It's not reasonable or logical. It is but the third hour of the day. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. But what you are hearing, what you are seeing, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes Joel. And Joel predicts the coming of the kingdom in that it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, between 17 and 21, he talks about the characteristics of, of uh, what, would, what, what the Spirit being poured out would accomplish, what it would, how it would manifest itself. The old men, the young men, the, 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 the daughters, the sons, the, the rich, the poor, all would have opportunity, all would have equal access to the blessings of God's forgiveness. So much so that he summarizes it by saying, you want to know who can be saved? Who's going to be saved? Whoever. Whosoever will, let him come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you know what they were asking? They were asking, what shall we do to be saved? Or what shall we do to call upon the name of the Lord? Now here's why this is important, and that is because we are so bombarded with different information about how to call upon the name of the Lord today. 
Some believe that all we do is to call upon the name of the Lord is call out audibly to him, God, Lord, save me. Some believe that it is merely a prayer that you pray privately, asking the Lord Jesus to come into your heart. That's a very popular belief. And the Bible, though, gives us a very different answer. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly how we can call upon the name of the Lord. When they said, what shall we do? Here's what Peter tells them. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They want to know what do we need to do to call upon God that we might be saved since whosoever will or whosoever calls upon him shall be saved. And Peter doesn't say pray. He doesn't say call out audibly. But he says obey. Obey these instructions right here. Repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of your sins. Now that's not the only time that baptism is mentioned in connection with calling upon the name of the Lord. Acts 22:16. When Saul becomes the apostle Paul, he is retelling his conversion story and he tells us that when he was praying for 3 days, Ananias comes to him and he tells him, "Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins." Here it is calling on the name of the Lord. What was he told? He was told to arise and be baptized and have his sins washed away. And when somebody does that, friend, they're calling upon God. They're asking God to obey, or asking God, rather, to save them on his terms as he has promised when we meet his conditions. Romans chapter 10, I believe is really kind of a neat parallel to Acts chapter 2. Romans 10, 12 through 13. For the, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord. Over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no distinction here between Jew and Greek. Everybody has equal access now to be saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He asked a series of rhetorical questions. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report. When you look at these rhetorical questions, you understand how to call upon God. There will be no calling upon God without belief. How shall they call upon him of whom they have not believed? And there will be no believing on him without hearing. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And there will be no hearing without a preacher preaching the gospel. And that's where we get, really, our second point. Once the facts have been presented, it is up to us to believe them. 
Not faith before facts, but facts that produces faith. And when faith comes, it comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I want you to notice something here. Saving faith is always an obedient, active faith. When Paul says they have not all obeyed the gospel, why was he able to make that conclusion? It's because of what Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report. He concludes that not everybody is going to obey because not everybody believed. Had everybody believed, they would have obeyed. And there is, a, there is a, a, an exchange here of, of these words. that they, they are used interchangeably. Obey and believe. So saving faith is an active, obedient faith. Mark 16, 15 through 16. Jesus tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Here it is. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Go preach the gospel. What do you do? You preach the facts first. Then what happens? Faith, an obedient faith that provides a blessing. Now, as we conclude here tonight, I want to give you one example how this all can tie together and really is illustra illustrative of what we've been talking about. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent by God to go preach to a man from Ethiopia, a eunuch. And he goes to him and he hears him reading out loud the word of God and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody should guide me? And you know what he does? The Bible says that he opened the same scripture and he preached Jesus unto him. There's your facts. They went down the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. See, here's water. What, what hinders me from being baptized? And uh, Philip said, if you believe, you may. If you believe. If you have faith. Now why would you want to be baptized? Because you've heard the facts and you believe them. And it's a response to those things. Now here's where it really gets, really gets beautiful. They stopped the chariot. They got down out of the chariot, went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And the Bible says that he went on his way rejoicing. There's your phoenix. He doesn't rejoice before he hears the gospel. He doesn't Rejoice, simply believing the gospel. He rejoices when he obeys the gospel. And there, friends, is the order of how the Bible reveals these essential, vital items that we all must come to grips with. It's, uh, it's not feelings first. And it's not faith first, but it's facts, faith, and feelings. And let me just add this in conclusion. No man should feel right until they have been made right with God.
And no one should feel that they've been made right with God until they can open the Word of God and put their finger on the passage and say, this is where my faith lies, this is what I've done, and this is why I have done it. And when you do that, there is a peace that surpasses understanding. There is a joy that does not come from traditions or emotionalism. It is a true feelings in a man's heart. And like I said, we as the children of God, there's nothing wrong with feelings. There's nothing wrong with emotion. Jesus was a human being and he, he, can, he exemplified all of the emotions that we have because he was fully human. But the problem is allowing our emotions to guide us. But when we allow the facts to produce faith, we have a joy, we have a hope that springs eternal, we have a, a longing and a desire, and we, are, we have a privilege to be in the presence of God and to serve God, and we too go on our way rejoicing. Maybe you're here this evening and you're not yet a child of God. You're not ready. You're not, you're not, uh, you, you haven't obeyed the gospel. Well, you have this opportunity tonight as we presented it here like this uh, New Testament example. It's an old example, but it is there preserved in holy writ so that we can continue to learn what we need to do to be saved and to please God. And if you're here and you need upon your uh, faith in Jesus to repent of your sins, to confess your faith, and be baptized to have your sins washed away. We'll assist you in that. Maybe you want the, the prayers of the church. We'll assist you in that as well. Please come while we stand and while we sing.